Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm John. And I'm Robin. Together, we research and break down complex and even controversial topics facing our society. We always aim to bring you honest analysis backed by research, to skew our bias towards what can be factually supported, and to make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. We're human. We have blind spots and biases, and they will show through. However, our goal isn't to convince you to see things our way. We want to build a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that we can address them together. We talk about some pretty heavy stuff on this show, and we tackle topics that might feel polarizing, but we do that because we have an important goal in mind. We want to change the way that people have hard conversations and we think that we can do that using research and discussion to create common understanding. And since you're here, we hope you want the same thing. So we suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. This week, we're going to close out our series, breaking down the viral Twitter thread from a commentator, a commentator, a commentator named Daryl <laughs> Cooper. I think that every time I, I see that word. <laughs> Just a regular old spud. Regular old um, spud. Daryl is known on, or Mr. Cooper is known on Twitter as Martyr Maid. Uh, it's been an interesting exercise, to say the least, as we moved tweet by tweet through the events he claims have shaped conservative perspectives over the last five years and led to the mindset that justified forcibly breaching the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. To be honest, it feels pretty difficult to work through this one with the same vigor as we brought to the first few episodes, simply because there's so much going on in the world right now. That's why we decided to pause last week and tell a story happening in real time to bring what's going on in the world, specifically in Afghanistan, into perspective. And before we move ahead, I do want to mention um, that we are obviously uh, thinking about the families of the the Marines and the Afghans um, that were injured in the, the attack. Um, we talked at length last week with a uh, with a marine who had been deployed to Afghanistan she is understandably uh, frazzled <laughs> to yeah. understate it um, she she is working overtime to do what she can from here um, the good news if you if you listened to la- last week's episode you knew you know that um, she was taking donations through her Venmo uh, because the GoFundMe hadn't been set up yet. Uh, the GoFundMe is now active. I will put we'll put that link in the um, in the show notes in case you want to donate to the GoFundMe if you weren't comfortable yeah. donating to a Venmo. Totally understand that. Um, so that link will be in the show notes uh, when we. By the time this. you hear this, it'll be up on social as well. So yes. you can find it everywhere. Um, unfortunately, I think the situation there is going to get worse before it gets better, but we all have to do our part and we will be the silver lining in this dark cloud if that's what it takes. But back to election fraud, (laughs) we're right here 
at the end, and we're going to finish strong because threads like this one, full of manipulation, bluntly, and leading statements and half-truths and poorly drawn conclusions, they are the reason we do this podcast in the first place. We need good information to make good decisions, to have ideas that matter rather than opinions that polarize. So strap in, folks. We're racing toward the finish line. Oh, before we get into this week's dumpster fire, I mean, breakdown of factual things. In this episode, we're using a second Daryl Cooper source. After what? his Twitter thread, I know, right? Crazy. After his Twitter thread went viral, he was given the opportunity to turn that into an essay on someone else's Substack thread. What do you call those? Are they pages? Are they threads? Are they newsletters? I, I don't even know. I don't know. I'm not familiar with Substack at all. It feels like a super throwback to me to back when, like, everybody had their own message board. But anyway. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. Digress. I thought it was a coding, like, repository. Kind of like GitHub. I'm not going to eh. lie. Yeah. Eh. I'm not um, hip right. or ancient. I might be too hip. I know. I we're, um, It's weird. Whatever. Broken hip? Not me. Anyway. <laughs> instead of just taking... <laughs> Instead of just taking his tweets and copying and pasting them and adding in the vowels where he had left them out on Twitter, he actually took the time to elaborate and add some sources linked in some sections. And in some places, he dialed back the inflammatory language quite a bit, enough actually in some places to change the way that his message is received. Hmm. Now, that seems sus to me to use a word that the hip and with the children use. So hip. Right? That's, I mean, that's suspicious to me. As somebody who is a professional communicator, to give one message in one tone in one place and then change that enough that it it changes the way that people receive your message on another yeah. platform, that's there's, just... There's, it's, it's one thing to adjust to your audience, um, which I guess might have been... Like, might have been the intense, you know, short form tweet versus long form essay. Um, but normally that doesn't mean like, it doesn't mean manipulating the information you're presenting in such a right. way that it creates a completely different impact. Yes. So. It doesn't mean yeah. lessening your claims. It doesn't mean dialing things back. And if you go and read that Substack essay, which will be in our in our sources, um, you'll see that he kind of, it almost feels like maybe he came to his senses a little bit when he had to type it all out long form again. Like maybe this was a heat of the moment, passion type of situation. I don't know. I don't know. But yeah. I'm because he wrote unclear. it. I'm still super unclear if these are his own personal thoughts or if these are thoughts that he gathered from interviews because he starts it out with like after talking to um, some people. So in the Substack thread, is that cleared up? Because I didn't catch it. It is it a little bit. He does. I mean, he does make more references to this is what conservatives think. I've heard conservatives say this is what conservatives were feeling. Um, he doesn't ever actually identify himself as a conservative thinker or person. He does in parts of this essay um, indicate that he agrees with or understands the perspective um, that maybe he also thinks that this is a thing that happened. Uh, but I get the impression from him that he's that he leans more toward that anti 
organized establishment situation. It doesn't really matter who's in charge. Mm. Um, but mm. you'll and you'll see that a little bit later as we start talking through the, the claims, the way that he kind of manipulates the language a little bit. But yeah. because it's it exists there. Yeah. and it gives us some extra context, we're going to include some of that tonight to try. Well, mostly because it's relevant because you tried to cite a source. Okay. Well, let's do this. Okay. So for the first part of this episode's hashtag Cooper claims, which is like my favorite hashtag right now, I want to read from both the tweet and the essay that Cooper wrote because the contrast here, like we were just saying, is pretty sharp. The tweet simply says, throughout the summer, Democrat governors took advantage of COVID to change voting procedures. It wasn't just the mail-ins. They lowered matching standards, etc. After the collusion scam, the fake impeachment, Trump people expected shenanigans by now. That's the whole tweet. But then he elaborates very significantly in his essay, even linking to the source that he used for the claims that he makes. He says, <clears throat> Throughout the summer, establishment governors took advantage of COVID to change voting procedures often over the protests of the state legislatures. It wasn't only the mass mailing of live ballots. They also lowered signature matching standards, axed existing voter ID and notarization requirements, and more. Many people reading this might think those were necessary changes either due to the virus or to prevent potential voter suppression. I won't argue the point, but the fact is that the U.S. Constitution states plainly that Quote, the times, places, and manner of holding elections shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. As far as conservatives were concerned, state governors used COVID to unconstitutionally usurp their legislature's authority to unilaterally alter voting procedures just months before an election in order to help Biden make up for a massive enthusiasm gap. A massive enthusiasm gap. Man, I don't know why my emphasis on that word is so weird tonight. <laughs> Make up for a massive enthusiasm gap by gaming the mail-in ballot system. Lawyers can argue over, leg over the legitimacy of the procedural modifications. The point is that conservatives believe in their bones, and I think they're probably right, that the cases would have been treated differently in both the media and in court if the parties were reversed. It's a hell of a lot more context. Mr. It is. It is. It also ends with a huge what about. What oh, a huge, huge what aboutism. What about? Okay, so the first question that we get laid out there is did governors, and notice Cooper flips from the Twitter thread where he says Democrat to the essay where he says establishment governors, but he gives Gee, I, no I wonder guidance why. <laughs> about what that means, um, probably because all of the states made changes. <laughs> Not just the Democratic states. I know, right? Gasp. Who could have seen this it, coming? Who could have possibly? Um, but also, you'll remember from the end of the Twitter rant that he goes on like this establishment cabal, like bunny trail. Um, so his first, his first question, our first question is, did these governors use COVID to alter election procedures in ways that would decrease the security of the election or allow Biden to game the mail-in ballot system. Well, as we already mentioned, the fact of the matter is that most states made changes to their election procedures. Democrat, Republican, establishment, 
anti-establishment, whatever, whatever the hell those things mean. And most of those changes centered around access to absentee or mail-in voting and voting period deadlines. The source that Cooper is relying on here from August of 2020 doesn't go into detail about changes made by states and their governors. It's a fired-up response to a New York Times piece that called the Trump campaign litigious, and it really focuses its efforts on pointing out that liberals, quote, filed a lot of lawsuits to force states to mail absentee ballots to all registered voters, get rid of voter ID and witness signature or notarization requirements for absentee ballots, or override state deadlines for absentee ballots to be either returned or postmarked by election day, or and void state laws banning vote harvesting by third parties, or stop or erode signature comparison procedures, and require that voters be sent postage prepaid envelopes for the return of completed absentee ballots, which was like a big deal. Um, I just, what? It's important, something I want to draw out here is that even though this information is from the New York Times, it's not from the New York Times. It's from somebody who wrote in to the New York Times. It's an op-ed piece. And generally speaking, Op-eds are not, newspapers in general can be useful for providing context context and information about an event that's happening. Um, it's a little shaky if you want to use them to provide like scientific, factual, or theoretical underpinnings. Um, but op-eds are just like Facebook. I mean, they yeah. were written well enough to get published, but anybody can write one and and send it in so there's they right. in and of themselves are not necessarily something that you should be looking at for um uh for inform uh, uh unbiased factual information right and this particular piece like it lives in perpetuity on a conservative they call themselves a think tank but it's basically a small conservative organization that has a blog and they rant and this is a rant on their blog because somebody got mad that the New York Times called the Trump campaign litigious. And it was like, I know you are, but what am I? Yeah, that's what it is. I know oh. you are, but what am I? That, that kind of like middle school response. Like it was totally visceral. And it was like, and also this and also this. Yeah. So it's not even an op-ed. I'm sorry. It's a response to the New York yes, Times just on a, a separate blog. Yeah. Wow. It's, even worse. So there's not even that level of because a, a newspaper like the New York Times, sure, they're going to let some shady stuff run, but they're going to give it some context. Uh, be, this like, has yeah. this has no context. And it's just full of these kinds of vague assertions that often come close enough to the truth for people to believe them on their face. But they don't in any way tell the whole story like this article that he cites as a source for these things is a rant against lawsuits. It's not a summation of actual changes to voting procedure. And of course, this source didn't cite their sources. But this is what Cooper chose to use as his evidence. So that's what we're working with. So yes, first bullet point here, there was increased access to absentee ballots in many states across the U.S. for the November 2020 election. We were in the middle of a pandemic, y'all. Many states 
automatically mailed their absentee ballot applications to register voters. Or they removed excuse requirements for absentee voters. But only nine states plus D.C. automatically mailed active ballots to all registered voters. Right. That's this was the first claim. They're so mad because we're just mass mailing live ballots, according to Cooper. That's not what happened. Nine states plus D.C. mailed active ballots. But four of those states, Oregon, Washington, Utah and Colorado, have held all or primarily vote by mail elections for years. That's what they do. That is their process. Hawaii, another one of the states, moved to an all mail system in the summer of 2019. So that means that only four states plus D.C. were new to this process, right? We're not mass mailing live ballots. Like, that sounds like live ammunition or like live yeah. fireworks. We're not sending bombs in the mail here. They're applications or ballots that have to be filled out and returned and all of that stuff. And evaluated and vetted. And then, yeah, there's a whole right. thing. <laughs> Bureaucracy. The government's great at it. Bureaucracy. Um so so six states, by our count, removed or modified the witness signature or notarization requirements for mail-in ballots specifically for the November 3rd election. We didn't find any evidence that states removed requirements for voter ID. The article Cooper cites points out efforts to override state deadlines for absentee ballots to be either returned or postmarked by election day. However, I could we could we could only really find information that indicated that two states made changes that would impact ballots not clearly postmarked by election day. Um, New Jersey accepted ballots without clear postmarks until November 5th, and Pennsylvania accepted ballots until November 6th if there was no proof that they were not postmarked by election day. And we'll talk about that more a little later on. But essentially, if there wasn't something on it that explicitly said it was mailed after election day, they went ahead and accepted it. Right. When we're talking about these changes to procedure, some of the most common amendments to these election deadlines involved early voting windows, which Cooper implies, and the reference article explicitly states, would game, quote, the election for Biden. The arguments for how these changes, which were made prior to the election, would unfairly benefit the Biden campaign are based on the idea that the majority of early voters vote Democrat. The logic is that if they could increase early voting turnout, it would make sense that they could increase blue votes. But in order to assess that, we have to see how the numbers actually shake out, right? So here's what we know. 101 million Americans voted early, either in person or by mail. That's a lot. But only 20 states report party registration of those voters. So... Of the early votes recorded that indicated some sort of a party registration, 44.8% of those were Democrats, 305 were Republican, and 24 indicated no party registration. That's So yeah, it shakes out a little heavier blue in those 20 states that report the party registration of their voters. And we don't know with that 24%, we don't know where they fall, they just didn't register with a party. That's how I vote. I don't really vote registered with a party. That's how a lot of people vote, actually, because most of us don't have it together enough to actually register in a primary to vote with a party affiliation. <laughs> We're just like, oh, shit, it's election day. Oh, crap. 
Is it? Oh, crap. <laughs> yep, that's, that's exactly it. Uh, so we know that more than 65 million early mail-in ballots were returned. Again, we can only know the party breakdowns from those 20 states that report that information. But 17.9 million of those came from Democratic voters, 10 million came from Republican voters, and 9 million came from voters with no party affiliation. I'm starting to see a trend here. But it changes a little bit when we talk about in-person voting before Election Day. Those numbers tend to skew more Republican. Pew Research surveyed voters and found that 30% of the Trump voters that they polled voted in person before Election Day, as compared to 24% of Biden voters. The U.S. Election Project, which uses, again, that third-party registration data, found that 41.6% of the early in-person voters in those states were Republican, 35.5% were Democrat, and 22% were unaffiliated. I'm, this argument irks me so much from a, uh, I'm an American <laughs> and I want right. America to function well as a healthy democracy perspective because the argument that I hear when I see this is that they're gaming the election by making sure that more Americans that are legally allowed to vote actually vote, which is somehow unfair. Right. Right. They're like, we should be celebrating that we have found ways to increase voter turnout because that's how democracy works, right? We want, yeah. we want as many people as possible to have their voice heard so that our government is representing the majority populations. Yeah. So like if that's... we are, if we're gaming quote-unquote gaming elections by making sure that people who can legally vote are voting, then we're not gaming elections. We're holding elections. Right. (laughs) And the reason there's, I mean, part of the reason, not the entirety, but part of the reason that there's such a discrepancy between the Democrats voting by mail and Republicans voting in person is because of the propaganda going on around this. Right. They kind of did it to themselves. Yeah. Remember, if you will, that the Republican Party spent the entirety of the election saying, vote in person. Don't trust vote by mail. Your votes are going to get eaten or something. They'll, they'll get right. thrown out by a disgruntled UPS or USPS driver. Um, right. they, like they made every excuse to get people to go directly to the polls, um, which... <laughs> was wildly reckless in the middle of a pandemic that has <laughs> killed know? up to this point. What, what are we at? 600, 650 or so thousand Americans by itself. Right. And, you know, um, it's not like states had just restricted their polling places because pandemic. So it actually was harder for people to get out to the polls, even though they told them that was the only safe place to vote. Yeah, exactly. So like the discrepancies are not, like they're only superficially nefarious in reality it's just like oh we had parties doing party stuff and the people who are part of a party followed the 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 guidance that their party gave them that's that's not sneaky that's no <laughs> no it's not sneaky interestingly that is exactly why 
when we were recording uh, during the election, we were talking about how um, we talked a little bit, not a lot about, but a little bit about how um, vote counts would change states from red to blue as as mail-in voting got counted because there was that discrepancy. And that's why there were so many pushes to discredit or discount mail-in votes. Yeah. So we digress. Honestly, the point is there's just not enough information there to claim that the early voters were the swing factor um, or that they gave either campaign a distinct advantage. There were something like 168 million registered voters in the U.S. in 2020. So that means that 67 million votes were still on the table after early ballots were cast by vote or in person or by mail. It's it's kind of a wash whether or not it was actually more whether or not mail in voting actually benefited either party more. Right. So another claim, moving on, listed in this source is that Democrats were seeking to void out state laws about ballot harvesting, which is a <laughs> it's a super ominous term. And I always envision like a little grim reaper <laughs> going around and like, yeah, ballots. I don't know it why. Sounds like or- it sounds like organ harvesting to me, which that's I don't ooh, know. That's also. Yeah. I read a I, lot of murder books. That's kind of darker. That's a little darker than mine, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it really, what it actually means um, is, is more like the, you know, thing that farmers do <laughs> when they gather their <laughs> right. crops and that we just totally ignored when we went into our visualizations. Um, it just means that one person would return absentee or mail-in ballots for other people. Now, 37 states already had clear provisions for who can return an absentee ballot. And further than that, nine specify who cannot return ballots. Eleven limit how many ballots can be returned by a single person. Seven plus DC uh, place restrictions on who can have their ballots returned by others. And Alabama only allows the voter to return their ballot. And we couldn't find any evidence that any state laws were voided or even significantly changed to allow for large-scale ballot collection. It was a loud claim, right? but the evidence doesn't bear out that it actually happened. Right. The The argument was, oh, we can't let this happen because people are going to go door to door and take your ballots and then change them. Or they're going to take your empty ballots and force you to fill them out. I mean, really, the the most prominent case of election fraud carried out through ballot harvesting was in like a small town election in the South, and the offender was a Republican operative. He was working for the Republican candidate, not even the Republican Party, not Republicans in general. But he was doing his thing. Like, that's the most prominent, and it it overturned a city runoff election. Gasp. Like, that's the most prominent case of ballot He got caught so fast. He literally got caught so fast. <laughs> like, it was obvious and clear. Crazy. That's, and that's the most prominent case of this kind of fraud that they're, they're telling us is, is imminent and terrifying. Yeah. Okay. 
So we're going to keep going. Things are not looking good for Cooper's evidence here. I really, for his sake, for the sake of a good argument, I wish that he had chosen a different source. Any source. Pick a source. But we're going to keep moving through this. So Cooper and his source both claimed that signature requirements were eroded as a part of these election procedure changes. But, (laughs) again, we could not find very many instances where signature matching procedures were altered, really at all. In Pennsylvania, counties were prohibited from disqualifying ballots based on a signature mismatch because voter identification is established during the ballot application process and because there is no procedure in Pennsylvania through which Ballots that are disqualified for signature mismatch can be cured by the voter unless they're officially challenged by an election official. This decision was actually supported in the Pennsylvania Supreme Court before the election with five Democratic justices and two Republican justices in affirmation. In Michigan... Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson gave instruction to clerks matching signatures, indicating that they, quote, must perform their duties under the, quote, presumption that the signature is valid and uphold the signature's validity if there were, quote, more matching features than non-matching features. Michigan law doesn't clearly define what a, quote, sufficient match looks like, and this rule was intended to compensate for that. The Michigan Republican Party filed a complaint against the rule on October 6th, the day it was issued, but didn't amend their complaint to indicate that the rule was unlawful until December 30th. And when they made that amendment, they did not claim that the directive caused them to accept any signatures they believed to be invalid. A judge ruled earlier this year that Benson did not follow appropriate procedure to enact the rule, and therefore therefore, it would not be enforceable in any future elections unless it went through the appropriate process. But again, no claim was made in the suit that the invalid ballots were counted due to the rule. So, theoretically, maybe that might have had some impact, But often when it comes to things like our rights, we err on the side of inclusiveness versus exclusiveness. Mm -hmm. We, We err on the side of making sure that it applies to the most possible people. So this isn't some, again, it's not a nefarious thing. It's a, we want to make sure that we're not accidentally disenfranchising people who should not be disenfranchised. But there was also an audit in Michigan. So I'm not right. Again, it's not (sighs) in isolation, in a vacuum, stuff like that can't might make your, your hair stand up and be like, ha ha, there we go. Found it. But one, Michigan going the other way wouldn't have changed the election at this stage. He, Trump needed more than one state to flip. Right. Um, and two, it's not like people just accepted these ballots and then was like, okie dokie, let's burn them and never look at them again. There were audits. There were right. audits in all 50 states. So it, right. there has been more than one set of eyes on these ballots. Yeah, and there was, there was no claim in this particular suit 
that her rule that they had to follow caused them to accept any ballots that would otherwise be invalidated. Um, and and part of the the process for that rule, part of the justification for that rule was because there's no clear definition of what a matching signature is or a mismatch is, these ballots could get caught up forever in bureaucracy, making this whole election process much more complicated, making it take longer. And one of the biggest complaints that people had about the election was how long it took to process all of these absentee ballots. Well, if if we didn't have rules like this that kind of allowed us to smooth that process, things would have taken a whole lot longer. But rest easy, because now if Secretary of State Benson wants to get that rule repassed, get it, put it put into place, she has to go through the appropriate procedures. That's what the judge said. So it's not like it's just now the wild, wild west in Michigan, right? In many of these election signature cases, the litigation involves allowing voters to correct a perceived mismatch or verify their identity should their ballots come into question. In Georgia, there were rules that were adopted that required multiple viewers to agree that a signature did not match before that they could disqualify it. Um, And there were rules about who those viewers had to be. And the Texas attorney general made a huge stink about it and sued them because it was bureaucracy and it was an undue burden and they shouldn't have to do that. Right. But if you think about it, these are hardly attempts to scam the system. Allowing a voter to offer proof that their ballot is valid is the exact opposite of a scam. It's the opposite. It's like proof that it's good. So if you are listening to this and you think you have a valid argument for why we should make it hard for people to verify the accuracy of their absentee ballot, please drop us a line. We have a contact page on our website. You can do it so easily. Please tell us why it should be harder for people. (laughs) I'm fired up. Sorry. This just pisses me off. No, I was just saying it's too soon to bump the website. That's at the end of the show. (laughs) You get fired up. We don't care. I get fired up. I'm fired up. Um, On that same note... Cooper's source also does not approve of requiring postage paid envelopes for voters to return their ballots. It was a whole thing. And I I started to type out like a whole well thought out response to that. But it just feels petty. Like that's just rude. Why would you not do postage paid? We get so much government bullshit mail with postage paid envelopes. Prepaid. You can pay for me to send my ballot back. Yeah. But I don't know how much a, a stamp costs these days, but less than a dollar a person. So I pulled out a nine-year-old forever stamp the other day, so that's how often I send mail. Yeah, we've got some pretty ancient ones, too. Uh, yikes. Um, so, so we've discovered yeah. now, or, or illustrated at least now, that there isn't much meat to the argument that election procedure changes at least at least the ones that cooper and his source are talking about specifically rigged the election yes changes were made by a host of officials but were the changes made in line with the constitution surprise surprise cooper source doesn't give any evidence to support the claim that changes made to election procedures by governors is actually unconstitutional he doesn't really talk about governors at all. But the argument in this whole conversation is Article 1, Section 4 of the Constitution, which makes it clear that 
the times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. But the Congress may at any time, by law, make or alter such regulations except as to the places of choosing senators. This is known as the Elections Clause, and notice that it is much longer than the one that Cooper included in his write-up. <laughs> right. He left out a pretty significant chunk of it, actually. But that's and it makes it <laughs> I know, right? It makes it clear that without the support of the state legislatures or other state officials empowered to make election decisions, any changes to the voting procedures in a state could be unconstitutional. However, there are several exceptions. For example, the US Congress can and has enacted laws that regulate congressional elections. These laws automatically override, or preempt is the word that's used in the Constitution, any state statutes that contradict the law passed by Congress. It can also enact its own regulations concerning aspects of an election that the state laws have not addressed. This was done primarily because the framers of the Constitution were concerned that states might establish unfair election procedures, or even attempt to undermine the national government by refusing to hold elections for Congress. So, Congress is empowered to regulate elections as a self-defense mechanism. I know it seems like an impossible scenario <laughs> that the states would try some sort of shenanigans, shenanigans to restrict voting rights. But for some reason, the framers thought it was a necessary safeguard. I don't know. Crazy old dudes, know. you know? Crazy Shenanigans. Crazy. Shenanigans. shenanigans. Nobody would ever get involved in shenanigans. So that's my um, second favorite word. I'm going to pistol the whip the next world. guy that says shenanigans. Hey, Barva. Sorry. No. Um, <laughs> the uh, <laughs> Super troopers <laughs> all the way. Love it. Ugh. The election Still clause is... You've never seen it? I've never seen it. Oh, no wonder you were giving me a blank stare. All right. Well, we'll Sorry. have to fix that at our next I thought you just retreat. hated the word shenanigans. No, 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 no. I love the I word. Thought we had to stop being friends for a minute. No, 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 no. You'll, you'll, you, you too will quote this scene in the future. Like I said, next okay. corporate retreat, you know, in the Swiss Alps or whatever, where we go with all of our our fun money. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's a thing that happens. Uh, so anyway, the elections clause um, it's further empowered by the Fourteenth Amendment. This is considerably longer than the elections clause, so we'll summarize it instead of quote. The 14th, the part that we're concerned about, protects the fundamental right to vote. It's one of its key provisions uh, is barring states from needlessly imposing substantial burdens on, on rights, especially on the right to vote. This means that any state law that says a person must meet certain requirements in order to vote must undergo scrutiny to determine if it imposes unreasonable burdens on the voters. If it does, that law is unconstitutional and should be, and it is, stricken or will be upon legal challenge. Uh, you will likely see many, 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 many court battles involving the 14th Amendment and state voting restrictions. Keep an eye out for them. They will be disguised as election security laws. Right. Um, and they will almost all be challenged, I would guarantee it. Interestingly, something I discovered in the course of researching this is that there is a conspiracy theory that was uh, at least supported by Donald Trump in 2015 
that the 14th Amendment isn't real. Wait, that it what? does not it does not apply that it was it is it is null and void. And and they're just like keeping it secret from us. What is that in the Nick Cage version of the Constitution? It it has something to do I think now, mind you, I did not delve too deep into this conspiracy theory because can't imagine why I would like to sleep at some point tonight. But it is, <laughs> I think it's it's revolves around the fact that um, southern states had to be offered some sort of compensation, some sort of mm. impetus to accept yeah. the Fourteenth Amendment because mm-hmm. you know it protected it, it protected it, the black. So, yeah, yeah. Um, because because it treated African-Americans like, you know, Americans, uh, there was an issue there. So there's a whole subset of people um, that claim one of the wilder claims that I saw was just blanket statement. Blacks are not Americans. Oh, I'm going to rabbit hole that shit so hard. It, I, I, I wanted to so bad, but we had a deadline. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, crazy, crazy stuff. Oh, man. Okay, well, conspiracy theories aside, Cooper is hanging his hat here on the fact that governors are the ones who enacted changes to state voting procedures in 2020. And therefore, all such changes were or are unconstitutional. The only reason they were allowed to stand, he says, is because no judge would take the case and risk an angry mob burning their house down. I'm not trying to laugh. I'll try that again, not laughing. It's just, just, no, no, it's fine. Just, you're just clearing your throat. It's cool. Yeah, no, okay. So <clears throat> the only reason they were allowed to stand, he claims, is because no judge would take the case and risk an angry mob burning their house down. This conveniently stacks on top of his claims that the, quote, left was coordinating massive riots in the event that Trump won the election, which we did cover a couple of episodes ago. And as you may have guessed, it's not exactly true. But Cooper or the folks he's representing or whatever, um, having they they have an incomplete understanding of what the elections clause actually means. Without getting too deep into it, if if one were to apply the plain English, plain reading, common understanding of legislature, it would certainly seem to imply that only the duly elected representatives that sit in a given state's capital could alter election laws in that state. However, this is not how the election clause is interpreted, which is made clear by none other than the Supreme Court. They have held that the legislature is extremely broad as a term, and it includes any entity or procedure that a state's constitution permits to exercise lawmaking power. In addition to that, a legislature may also delegate its authority under the elections clause to other entities or officials, such as a state governor. Though this is most commonly seen in the legislature granting the power to redraw election districts to a nonpartisan or bipartisan independent redistricting commission. This is done in an effort to make the electoral process more fair and prevent gerrymandering, which we also have a whole episode on gerrymandering. 
And it will be very important here in the coming months to be familiar with that term, to understand how it works. So you should check that one out, too. Importantly, standards for reasonableness are fluid. They can change. So for example, let's look at a slightly different hot button topic, the use of force by police. The reasonable use of force requires awareness of the facts and circumstances of each particular situation. Therefore, use of a particular level of force in one scenario may not be considered reasonable in another scenario. Questions of morality aside, this is why some officer-involved shootings are legally protected while others are not. It is considered reasonable to shoot someone who is currently breaking into the Capitol building as part of a mob threatening to kill the vice president. For example, it is conversely unreasonable to shoot someone who is participating in a protest and not threatening to kill anyone. In both scenarios, a gun is discharged and a person dies, but the circumstances around the occurrence change the legality drastically. (laughs) Okay, so bringing this back to voting, what does all this mean? Well, primarily, it means that the constitutionality of a given governor changing the voting laws in their state is dependent on way more than just a plain reading of the elections clause in the Constitution. The clause itself allows some latitude for governors to make changes. The 14th Amendment then provides that no law can put a substantial burden on voting. All these hurdles must be deemed reasonable. In a global pandemic, laws that were once considered reasonable might not be reasonable anymore because they place an undue burden on the voter. Therefore, changing that legislation may not only be permissible, but it might be necessary in order to prevent the current voting regulations from running afoul of the elections clause. The, and the 14th Amendment, that's actually... Yeah, and, and the 14th uh, the, Amendment. Yeah. So, further... We have the results of several court cases related to the 2020 election. If, if the theory part of this weren't enough, mm-hmm. we have practical, all right? Many, many of the lawsuits were dismissed for various reasons like lack of evidence or lack of standing, which means that the person filing the lawsuit wasn't actually wronged <laughs> by it. So they don't have any ability to, to bring the lawsuit, right. okay? But of the ones that made it to court, the results are, as one might expect, given the complexity around the question, mixed. So, for example, there was a successful suit that ruled that Governor Gavin Newsom of California exceeded his authority by mandating all Californians receive mail-in ballots for the general election by invoking the California Emergency Services Act. But... This was undercut by the fact that only 15 days after Newsom enacted that mandate, the state legislature enacted a law that did essentially the same thing. So the 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 initial claim of the lawsuit was moot. It didn't matter if if at least it didn't matter for um, whether or not the ballots going out or the the. Yeah, the the ballots going out was uh, illegal or unconstitutional the lawsuit became and what it what i think it was always about um was making sure that a future government 
or a future governor couldn't do the same thing that Newsom had done um, and use that that uh, it, the California Emergency Services Act to to send out mail-in ballots again, right. um, even though it doesn't particularly matter because <laughs> there's a law now. Right. But so. it, it's that lawsuit was not about the thing that was done. It was how the thing was done. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's the case with a lot of these lawsuits. It's not what is being done. It's how it's being done. So conversely, the case of Pennsylvania Democratic Party, the Bookvar upheld changes to Pennsylvania's election laws that included collecting hand-delivered mail-in ballots at locations other than designated office addresses and a three-day extension of the absentee and mail-in ballot received by deadline so that all ballots that were not clearly postmarked after 8 p.m. on election day could still be accepted. This case made it all the way to the United States Supreme Court, which declined to contravene those changes. Basically, they said, meh, we're not going to change your changes. They can stand. So what this boils down to is that the claim is, I guess, partially true since some of these laws were stricken down. Mm -hmm. um, it's mostly false, though. Right. <laughs> it's like 90% false. Um, it's far, far, far too reductionist to say that any given action to change voting regulations was automatically unconstitutional due to the elections clause itself, um, which would make sense considering that these governors have in entire teams of lawyers just around to research and determine if any given action is unconstitutional. Granted, they get it wrong sometimes. But I, I hardly think it is likely that every single one of them would have gotten it wrong in every single place that these changes are being challenged. It would just be too much of a coincidence. So likely what we're going to see and what we are seeing as these cases play out is that some of them are going to be unconstitutional because something was applied incorrectly mm -hmm. or um, there was a technicality. Um, some of them are going to be totally constitutional because everything was done above, like, correctly. Um, but I don't think we're ever going to, I don't think any of the cases are going to resolve with, like, a just completely everything about this was unconstitutional and this was, uh, you know, a, a, a dark and twisted plot. Something I want to point out about the judge's claim, by the way, is that Trump appointed hundreds of federal court judges <laughs> In his tenure. Literally so, the, so many. The judges that would be seeing these cases were Trump appointees. They were. So if you believe that judges are beholden to the administration that appointed them or to the party that appointed them, they would want to see these cases. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, and I think that that's another reason that you kind of have to switch the conversation from Democrats to establishment. Establishment. Because yeah. if you just try to make the case that it's only Democrats and then you have Republicans coming in, it completely violates your logic. And you can't do yeah. that. Cognitive dissonance. Yeah. So you got to change the theory. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. In all, I think this is just one of those cases where people don't understand because they've never had to experience just how much bureaucratic BS goes into enacting any given policy or practice in the government. Just all of the BS. All of it. Hey, speaking of that, 
Before we take some time to chat about what we've learned from this exercise, we don't want to skip over a couple of other sensational claims that were listed in this section. At this point, Cooper claims that big tech, generally Facebook, Twitter, Google, YouTube, banned all discussion on these crazy election process changes. Even in DMs, he says, (laughs) exclamation point. Well, folks, that's fundamentally untrue. Talk of these changes was everywhere, everywhere, including my DMs and her DMs and discussion of election changes was not banned. It was all over Facebook and annoying as all get out to me personally. What they did do is place some heavy restrictions on content that had a militarized tone, words like battle and war and fight, and could be interpreted to encourage voter suppression and attach labels to posts that could be misinformation, and they removed content that was clearly intended to suppress the vote or indicated foreign interference. They also limited paid-for political ads. Yeah. Um, like but We said it different. last time. Like yeah. We couldn't even run podcast ads talking about vote-by-mail because they fall into that special category. It, yeah. it just is what it is. So... Did these platforms, did big tech, (laughs) Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, did they remove content? Yes. When it violated community guidelines or appeared to. Whenever you post on a platform, your post is subject to their community guidelines. Whether you've seen those community guidelines, whether they changed, whether you remember what they said or agree with what they said, if you checked the box and said, I agree to follow all of your community guidelines, your post is subject to them. And no, the process for determining violations and even correcting them is not foolproof. It's a mess. I had a client last week that had a YouTube video flagged and age-restricted because of their video content, but the video was about Lakota beadwork. That doesn't make any sense. No. But at the end of the day, we're all subject to these processes if we want to play on these platforms. So to imply that this is somehow amounting to repression of speech around this topic, that's a less than effective argument, at least with me, who deals with these platforms in my everyday job. Um, And the other sensational claim that we wanted to mention here is that Cooper says um, when, what do you say, when the four swing states, eh, something about Oh, yeah, they all went dark at midnight. Yeah, he says, so after he's talking about how Trump people expected shenanigans, he says when the four critical swing states and only those states went dark at midnight, they knew. Right. So implying that they knew that there was this huge scam and this was over and they had been gamed. Um, I don't know what he's talking about with there being four swing states. <laughs> there were like seven, eight, yeah. maybe even nine in this election. Um, and they certainly did not all go dark at midnight in my again, in my over visualizational brain here. I'm picturing like the map of the United States with all the electrical grids and those four states just go completely <clears throat> dark. Pew. Like that's, they didn't even all stop counting at the same time. 
Yeah. So this idea that some of them four were... swing states all went dark at midnight and that was a cue. They knew when that happened, it was over. Like that is some sensational, well, BS. Yeah, that's that's definitely applying a post, like ex post facto yes. reading of events. Because if you will remember, so many states were not counted on election night, like just weren't finished counting Mm-mm. on election night. Uh, on election night, so which night the, did they go dark on? We didn't know what the swing states were on election night because. There were none because, honestly, the whole map was red because all of the in-person voting had been counted first. And then they were (laughs) getting to all of the mail-in votes. And that's what sparked part of this conspiracy is like suddenly as if nobody could have foreseen the fact that the party that was encouraged to vote primarily by mail would have most of the votes submitted by mail. Uh, Nobody could have seen that it would turn parts of the map blue right. like it's basic logic it's it's basic and logic and it's it's something that the media teams had been well actually if you go back and to listen to uh insurrectionist logic part three color revolutions and p tapes which is maybe my favorite podcast title of all time we talk about <laughs> the fact that that these media teams had been educated on what to expect from a data perspective so when it looked like the media all knew that there was going to be a blue wave coming, it's because they knew that there was going to be a blue wave coming because the yeah. data tells us that. Yeah. Data prediction, I, I, data analysis tells us that. It's not black magic. I, I distinctly remember John King talking about it, Jake Tapper talking about it, and walking through like why it was going to happen. Um you know why we could expect to see, to see some some states uh, flip over the course of the right. the, the week, the three days after the election, um, because it's 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 basic math, and it is not a mysterious thing. We predicted it; it was known based on statistics. So, again, a lot of this stuff. And just pulling it back to a a broad view of what we have discussed over the course of these four episodes, a lot of it gets down to um, an emotional level, what Mm -hmm. people want to believe, which sounds weird because these are very, like, if if you are not a Democrat, if you're not a blue voter, um, these are horrible things, right? an election manipulation and your guy had an election stolen from him. Why would anybody want to believe that? Because it's the only way you can justify losing. It's the only way that the puzzle pieces that you have been told right. are right fit together in your head. But you can see the bias in these arguments when they talk about an enthusiasm gap. I right. still just butchered that word wrong. <laughs> Um, I, don't I don't know what it is tonight. It's so <laughs> weird. Um, but the, I didn't see an enthusiasm gap because yeah. I knew I was voting for Biden. So the circles that I ran in, they had no enthusiasm gap. They were very enthusiastic about getting Trump out of office. Right. But 
the Trump people, the red people, they see the difference in the rallies on the ground. They see that Biden's rallies were held at a distance and people were in cars and Trump's were acting like there was no such thing as coronavirus. And they're like, clearly that's different. And they don't they don't know how to comprehend that there's more to elections. There's more to who people vote for than a rally and mm-hmm. that and and rally turnout. Um, and after four years and especially after a year of just chaos with the coronavirus, it. I don't think a lot of people needed to show up at a rally to know who they wanted to vote for. <laughs> right. So. Yeah. It. So something that really, really, really stood out to me as we made our way through all of these claims, especially this one tonight where he's talking about all of these big election changes. There is this tendency when you're trying to make a persuasive argument to make a few sound like many. So we went from mass mailings of live ballots to understanding that only four states plus D.C. had new policies that allowed for live ballots to be mailed. We went from all of the states were trying to erode signature matching rules to two states where there were cases brought to court about signature matching rules. It's not all. It's one or two. And so... When you're making these kinds of emotional and persuasive arguments, it can feel really justified to say they are doing this, they are doing that, the governors did this, the governors did that. But when when you're forced to acknowledge how many, how much actually this happened, you see that it's really minor compared to the way that it's made to sound. And again, that's that's normal for this kind of persuasive conversation. You do that when you're trying to convince somebody that something very important is happening. You take things and you use hyperbole and you overemphasize them and you make it sound like it's ubiquitous because you want people to get fired up about it. Daryl Cooper wanted a big response from this Twitter thread and he got it. Thanks to our friend, The Tuck. He wanted that kind of response, and that's what he got, because that's how he wrote this. He didn't want to make an actual case. He wasn't trying to cite evidence. That was not the intention of this thread. The intention of this thread was for everyone who read it and shared these same suspicions to say, yeah, that, see, I told you I was right. That's the whole purpose of this kind of communication. And that's why it's so important for us to pick it apart. And I know it seems petty and I know it sounds pedantic, like we're just trying to prove him wrong. But if people don't take that initiative, if we don't all make the effort to prove these things wrong, whether we agree with them or not, then we're going to fall into these patterns where we just ride the waves of the next most emotionally moving Twitter rant that we come across. And that's not healthy. That's not how we get anywhere in a society, let alone a democracy. Yeah. Something that struck me was that in our second episode, um, 
when we got a little bit of feedback from addressing this thread from the people who had requested that we address this thread, um, they were talking about how we were missing the point, basically, because we were addressing the facts and not the feelings, that people feel this way. And the problem is with that, and what I want to reiterate is that if you are basing your feelings on lies or best massive exaggerations you are you are being manipulated people are trying to get you to feel emotional in order to enact a certain response so the only way we we can't we can validate that yes you feel that way but we can't and we can't validate that feeling that way is based on good reason to feel that way. And we're not, again, when we do, when we do stuff like this, we're not trying to beat up the people who, who do believe these things. Uh, we know that we can get snarky at times. It is frankly how we stay sane while we do these things um, because it is a lot of work. It is a and lot. And we need to we need to make ourselves laugh. Otherwise, we will go absolutely crazy. Go back and listen to the first couple of episodes when we were trying to be very serious. Oh, man. Never would have lasted. Um, I'd be great right now. Um, so like it, it's it's not meant to be like you are an idiot for believing this. You're not. Nope. You're a person who has been told certain stories over and over and over again. And it is only natural that you would believe the things that are drawn out of those stories. And that is totally human and that is fine. And it is okay to be wrong as a human. What's not okay is having evidence to your, to the incorrect aspects of what you believe laid out and choosing not to listen to it, which is one of the reasons that we ask for people to respond to our episodes if we get it wrong. Because we know we're getting it wrong somewhere. We're human too. But you, you have to seek out and you have to listen to those other opinions. And if you don't like it, you can't just throw it out. Right. You can't just it, say you're missing the point because I feel this way. Yeah. So, again... Totally understand that you feel that way. Totally understand why you feel that way. You have a lot of work to do, I feel like, to understand that just because you feel some, something, some sort of way, doesn't mean that you're right. And that there might be other explanations than what you are being presented with. And it is not weakness Right. To admit that you are wrong. Exactly. But if you now, want to tell us gonna, we're wrong. I, yeah, I was going to say, we're not going to ask you to admit that you're wrong in public. But if you would like to tell us that we're wrong, if you there's anything you'd like to communicate with us, there's a really easy way that you can do that. We have a website, firesidebreakdowns.com. All of our yeah. episodes live there. All of our show so notes cool. with all of our sources live there. We do cite our sources. Why? So that you all can vet them and tell us if you feel like, 
hey, I don't feel like it's okay that you relied so heavily on Ballotpedia for this episode, even though they did a fantastic job of chronicling all of the changes to state election laws during the course of the 2020 election. Holy crap, what a work of journalism. Heavily cited in this episode. If you don't like that, you can tell us that. We have a contact form. We do. It's linked at the top of our website. Also linked at the top of our website is a little button that says support us. And if you would like to become a patron and buy us a cup of coffee or help contribute to a subscription to the New York Times or the Washington Post so that I don't have to keep creating email addresses so that I can keep reading free articles, that would be amazing. Fantastic. It's right there at the top. If you would like to become a patron of our show, we have one fantastic patron. Her name is Catherine. We, we love her. One cup of coffee a month. Thank you. It's Catherine. amazing. We're super jazzed about it. So jazzed. All that to say. Actually, we really are. It's made us <laughs> I know. We're so excited. <laughs> we're super jazzed. We're like dumb excited. Um, yeah. You can also find us on social media. We are on Twitter and Facebook. Or no. So God, let me just walk that back. We technically are on Twitter. <laughs> well. I mean, yeah. we're not on Twitter, but our name is. You can find us on social media. We are on Instagram and Facebook consistently. Uh, and then sometimes we're we're on Twitter when I remember to share the episode links there. And you can find some old stuff there. Uh, but if you know, if you really, if you're listening to this and you're like the primary way that I communicate is through Twitter, you could just at us. I'll still get the notification. Yeah. Let us know. And, and we could just respond to you there. So you can find us on the socials. You can find us on our website. For God's sake, give us some good news so I stop rambling. Oh, my God. Okay, fine. Um, so, well, folks, this is being published on August 30th, and I'm not sure if you noticed, but Donald Trump has not been reinstated as president of the United States. It turns out that the MyPillow CEO <laughs> is not, in fact, a constitutional scholar slash master investigator slash political strategist genius. I'm shocked. Alas, the QAnon conspiracies have proven to be, yet again, utterly and laughably false. Now, I know this may be strange for us to list as good news since it's obviously taking a biased stance, but I also feel like the majority of Americans are probably with us on this one. I mean, I'm not saying the majority are glad Biden is president. I'm just saying they're glad Trump isn't again. All kidding aside, we're putting this in the good news section because this is yet another hole in the QAnon conspiracy theory. And I have a personal vendetta against QAnon. Yes, it has done a considerable amount of damage to American discourse, leading to conspiracy theories about 5G and vaccines and the election and now the withdrawal from Afghanistan. The more times that we can point to obvious inaccuracies and missed predictions and holes in the theories and contradictions, the more people can be convinced that it is, in fact, all a dark, twisted fantasy. I, for one, am glad that the folks who think there's a shadowy cabal of Satan-worshipping pedophiles running the world are wrong yet again. Robin, you want to take us out of here tonight? I do. I'm so Done. I'm so glad to be done with this series. It was a great exercise, but we're ready to move on. We'll be back again with you next week, trying out something a little bit different for us. So we hope that you will join us again next week as we do new things. Until that time, with so much craziness going on in the world, please, everyone, take care of each other. Mm -hmm.